Dominic Cummings. No, don't just switch off just yet. But over the last couple of weeks, the controversy surrounding him just won't go away. Now, you may be disappointed to know that I'm not going to offer any political commentary this evening, but I imagine for most of us, we will have already formed our own thoughts, our own judgments about his actions. One thing I've noticed as this pandemic has continued is that as a nation, we seem to be getting, I suppose, more more commonplace to judge one another. There was an article in The Guardian the other day that had the headline about the delicious joy of sitting in judgment over the lives of others. And living in a world that is full of rules, it's quite easy to see why we end up going down that sort of road of, of behaviour. Now, you might have found yourself doing it. I certainly have. When you go out for a walk and you suddenly see a big group of people and you think, they're not all of one household or they're not all from um, the same place. And without knowing anything at all about people, we end up passing judgment. Now, Jesus has quite a lot to say about passing judgment on one another, but we haven't got time to go into that this evening. But the reason that I raise this theme of judgment is because that's what the first part of the next section of Hebrews chapter 10 is all about. If you joined us last week, we were looking at the pinnacle of the work of Christ, if you like, the summit of the high priestly ministry of Jesus the Messiah, who through his very blood, through the shedding of his blood, through his one-off sacrifices, ushered us into the holy place. And we looked also how that we, we are encouraged to keep meeting together, to keep encouraging one another. And then it can appear a little bit like the writer goes off onto a totally different subject matter. So let's read the verses and then we'll look at them as we progress this evening. So if you've got a Bible in front of you and want to turn to this, we're reading from Hebrews chapter 10 and I'm reading verse 26 down to 39 and I'm reading from the ESV. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Lord, we just pray that as we open your word this evening, that you'll help us to understand it, that you'll help us to to gain what is your heart from these words and what it wants to say to us today. So Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts, in our lives, and just encourage us now as we explore these verses together. 
We ask it for the sake of Jesus. Amen. When you climb a mountain and you get to the top and you get to the summit, that's not by any means all the hard work done. Far from it. There there is an increased risk, actually, of, of slipping or falling, coming down off the summit and getting down from where you started. Now, I was climbing a mountain in North Wales last summer. And going up, it it was fine. I didn't really notice any hardships. But then coming down, there was a particular point we got to where there was a 500-foot drop on one side and a load of rocks on the other. And I had to sort of clamber over a little ledge, literally this wide, to get down the mountain. And it took um, Rich, who I was with, a, a little bit of help from him to get me down off that point. But I managed it, and I'm still here to tell the tale. But for the writer of the Hebrews, now that we have reached the summit of the work of Christ, really these verses serve as an encouragement and as a warning to us. Don't lose your concentration, don't lose your confidence in the gospel, and certainly do not fall off the place that Jesus has called you to. So there's a few things here that I think if we're going to get a handle on these verses and try and understand what the writer wants us to know, that we we need to explore. We're going to really look at three headings for this first part of this passage. The first thing is thinking about the nature of God's judgment. Then we'll look at who is the writer writing to, who is he thinking of in these verses? And then thirdly, what does this say to us? I wonder when we think about the judgment of God, I wonder what comes to mind. I wonder whether you instinctively think of an angry God and sometimes an even angrier preacher, you know, sort of thumping the pulpit, warning of us of hellfire. Or perhaps it's just something that actually you'd rather not think about, and we'd rather think about God's love and his forgiveness than think about judgment. Or perhaps it's a whole concept that actually makes you wish at the moment that you'd actually switched on to something in Netflix and could ha- watch something totally different. But let's put those caricatures on one side if we can for a moment. The judgment of God is primarily good news, because it's about God putting things right. That God, the creator of heaven and earth, will one day judge evil and the perpetrators of evil. And this language of the day of the Lord, the language that God will put things right, that God will judge, underpins the whole of the narrative of scripture. And so this is good news. This is good news because the evil in our world, whether it originates from spiritual powers of darkness, whether it originates from systemic human evil, or the decisions of individual, there will come a day of reckoning when this evil will be called to account. And so the good news is twofold. Firstly, it's that God has provided in Christ a remedy for the evil in our own lives. He has paid the price for us. We don't need to fear his judgment because in Christ we are saved, we are set free from all that is to come when God judges the world. But for those who won't, those who won't turn to God's love, those who won't bow the knee before Jesus, God will measure out justice. And so this is good news because we know that evil will will not win. The violence, the terror, the wars of this world will come to an end. They will not win. The book of Revelation, with all its terrifying themes of judgment and, and what we see going on in there, one writer um, quite simply summarized the book by saying, if you want to know what Revelation is about, it's about this, Jesus wins. And that is essentially what judgment is about, that Jesus will um, will judge the earth, that he will come as the judge of the living and the dead, and evil will be held to account. So who's the writer thinking of? Why are these verses written? 
because they are quite stark, aren't they? I don't know if you found that when I was reading them, but there's this warning of the destruction by God and the trampling of the Son of God underfoot and the falling into the hands of the living God without an available sacrifice for atonement. You know, wow, that is not easy kind of language. It's difficult. But we have to remember this is a letter. This is not a textbook. This is not some kind of systematic theology being written. This is written to real people, to people like me, people like you, people who have hopes and dreams and longings and fears. And it's written to a particular situation. The Roman emperor Caligula was not one of Rome's better rulers, but he's commonly thought to have gone mad at some point during his reign. And he he did the most bizarre and, and weird things. And one of the things that he used to do was to make up laws. And he'd make up a law and it'd be very random, but then he would have it carved into stone and placed on a wall so high up that nobody could read it. And then he would punish people for not obeying the law. And so this rather farcical scenario of people getting punished for obeying a law they couldn't see. Now, God is not like that. And we we must put all those kind of thoughts. You know, this is not a passage about us getting tripped up and somehow falling into, into some kind of sin. This is not a passage to scare us. Now, we don't know exactly who this passage is written to, but we can have a reasonable idea. Tom Wright puts it like this, that this passage is to someone who has heard the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, who has come into fellowship with the people who hold it fast and live by it, and who then turns away and declares that it's all rubbish, and he or she doesn't want anything to do with it. Such a person, says Hebrews, is trampling God's son underfoot treating the covenant blood as though it were meaningless and despising the Spirit of God through who comes saving grace. It could be that these were the people on the fringes of the gospel, people who perhaps tasted something of the joys of Christ but not exactly given their lives over to him. It's quite possible, but we don't know. But whatever the exact issues, this is not talking about somebody who falls into occasional sin or accidental sin, but this is about the kind of deliberate wholesale rejection of the Son of God, calling the gospel a lie, willful posturing against the rule of God. And the response to this comes in verse 30 and 31. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right back through the Old Testament, and if you want to look up these passages, look at Leviticus chapter 4 or Numbers 15. We find that actually even in the law of Moses, for those who willfully reject God, who purposely turn away from him, there is no sacrifice that is available to atone. They have put themselves, if you like, beyond beyond atonement because people don't want to come to repentance. They don't want to seek forgiveness. They are actively distancing themselves from God. And so in the Old Testament, it says such people should be cut off from the people. God won't force people to turn to him. God won't force people to repent. So after these words have been written in Hebrews, the church for for centuries and and, even today grappling with, well, who do we apply this passage to? Who's it actually talking about? Did this passage apply to those who were baptised perhaps and then who committed some awful sin afterwards? And this was a commonly held view in the early years of the church, but it's probably not that view, but it did lead to quite an interesting habit. The people got put off being baptised until right at the end of their lives. Now there's a picture on your screen of of Constantine, the Roman emperor, being baptised right at the end of his life on his deathbed 
I don't know about you, but he looks very healthy for somebody who's about to die, but that's probably just artistic licence. Or did this passage, should it have been applied to those who in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, when Christians came under persecution from the Roman Emperor, if they didn't worship him, and they were, they were meant to offer incense to the Emperor, and if they refused, they could get sent to the lions. And a lot of Christians gave in. A lot of Christians said, well, we'll just do it to save our lives. But then the time of persecution passed, and these Christians then wanted to get readmitted to the church. And there was a lot of questions, well, should we apply Hebrews 10? Have they gone too far? Is there no sacrifice available? Now, again, probably not, I would suggest, because these people were actually seeking forgiveness. So in my view, these verses are even more extreme. These are not the kind of verses and the kind of behaviour that we accidentally fall into. But these are about people who make that wholesale, willful rejection of the gospel and who trample the gospel underfoot. So what about us? What does this have to say to us today? Well, a few weeks ago, John was taking us through an earlier passage where we were looking about eternal security and where we heard about the joys of being in Christ, that that when we follow Jesus, he seals us with his Holy Spirit. We know we belong to him and we can live in confidence with that assurance of eternal hope, not having to prove ourselves to God through, through works, but actually knowing that we belong to him. Now, I don't want to cover too much of the same ground that we covered the other week. But just to remind you, really, that there there have been sort of two particular strands within evangelical thinking in terms of how we understand eternal security and whether people can actually fall away from their faith. And you have the, the Calvinistic view from the writings of John Calvin, one of the great reformers. And he would suggest that actually, once you're saved, you're always saved and that God had chosen you, you would follow him and you would persevere right through to the end until you're with him in glory. And then you get a revision of that view by Jacobus Arminius, and it was popularised in this country by John Wesley, who taught that actually Hebrews 10 is a real possibility for Christians, that actually you can shipwreck your faith. And so Wesley would, would encourage people to you know stand firm in the gospel, don't get to the edge of a precipice and risk falling off. Now, my own view, for, for what it's worth, and I realise that I'm wading in here to a, a very difficult topic, is that actually we have to live with some amount of tension here. Human systems that can be overlaid over scripture can sort of back the biblical writers into corners, which actually they weren't going. And so from God's side, if we view this from God's side, he knows us. He knows when we're following him. He knows when we've heard his call. He knows out of his sovereignty who will persevere and who will be with him in glory. However, as human beings, we don't get to see all that. And so we still look through a glass dimly and we do have choices to make in our lives. And they do have implications. We are not pre-programmed robots. And so there is something of a paradox here. And so we have to take this passage as a real warning to real people. The writer's, um, if you like, basic underlying thing is, is to warn people. It's not about some kind of theoretical discussion. So back onto the mountain. Sorry about all these mountain illustrations. You'll have to forgive me just for one more week. But when you go climbing mountains, actually, what you have to do is make sure you've got the right equipment to keep safe, to make sure that you don't injure yourself or fall off. And depending on whether you're climbing, you know, somewhere in the Lake District or Everest, depends on what you take with you. Now, the only time I've got in real danger on a mountain, and it it actually turned out to be okay, but it it could have been potentially quite catastrophic, was on the Isle of Skye. And I was there with a friend, 
and we'd been driving up to Sky and we'd arrived sort of early one evening and it was probably seven, eight o'clock in the evening. And we decided just to go for a sort of short walk up a valley. We had no equipment with us at all. We were wearing trainers. We weren't even wearing walking boots. But going up this valley, what started out as quite a nice path descended into some kind of boggy type quagmire. And we thought, well, we don't really want to have to walk back through this. So we thought, well, let's do a shortcut up the hill to the right-hand side and come back along what looked like a low-lying ridge. However, when we got back and looked at the map, what we thought was a small hill was a 2,000-foot mountain. And it took us an hour and a half to get to the top of this mountain. When we got there, the cloud came down and we couldn't see a thing. We had no map, no walking boots, no way of contacting anybody. And so we put ourselves actually in a really stupid position. Thankfully, we did turn the right way and we did end up back at the car. But you know, the sad thing about mountains is that people do get injured. People do fall off. People do hurt themselves. And the sad thing about the Christian faith and and being part of a church family is that we see people who have been following Jesus in a really wholehearted way drift away. Some people seem to drift out to the side of the church and perhaps go from having confidence in the gospel to some kind of Christian agnosticism. Other people seem to, to sort of make a wholesale rejection of the gospel. Now, yes, of course, we can ask those questions about were they saved in the first place anyway, but that is more theoretical rather than observational. It's also very easy to point these kind of questions at other people, but actually what happens if we ask these questions of ourselves? Where are we in relation to Jesus today? Where is our heart today? See, very few people, in my experience, stop following Jesus overnight. What happens is a kind of sustained unravelling. You see, I can't answer for the genuineness or not of your relationship with Christ. I don't know what goes on in your heart, in your mind, in those hours of the darkness. I don't know what secret doubts and fears are are sort of going on inside. But in human relationships, perhaps in a marriage or between friends or in a work environment, yes, sometimes relationships can fall apart quite quickly. But quite often relationships fall apart when actually... We, we start focusing on them and we start thinking about other things and slowly but surely the whole thing starts to unravel. In our relationship with the Lord, actually, we can start to drift long before anyone else knows anything about it. The only person who ultimately knows about that is ourself. You know, it might be tonight that we take the writer of the Hebrews warning and actually are prepared to say, hold on a minute, I'm struggling as a Christian. I need somebody else with me. I need to to get this meeting together stuff right and have somebody who will walk alongside me and encourage me. Because actually, we are responsible for ourselves before God. But it is easy to blame other people, isn't it? We can can point the finger, it might be at the church. You know, if only at church we, we had more sung worship, more prayer, more whatever it might be, more teaching, then I would be closer to God. Or we can say, well, if only my small group leader would help lead us into a deeper understanding of the scriptures, then I'd grow more. Now, God has blessed us with one another. We're commanded as Christians to keep meeting together. But I came across this the other week uh, about Judas. You know, Judas, the, the disciple who then betrayed Jesus. And just, just look at this on the screen. It said Judas had the best pastor, the best leader, the best advisor, the best counsellor, and yet he failed. The problem is not the leadership or the church you go to. If your attitude or character doesn't change, your heart doesn't transform, 
you will always be the same. Well, in fact, the writer of Hebrews says, actually, you can always go backwards as well. So how is your heart at the moment? Where is your heart in relation to Christ? Perhaps this week, perhaps just spend some some moments just reflecting on your own inner journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the final few verses of chapter 10 bring another dynamic into the mix. And it's namely that of Christians who have been under pressure. And um, it's it's really about encouraging people who, who are suffering from persecution or suffering from testing to cling on to the gospel. Now, in the the early years of the church, there were times when actually people gave in and gave in to to the pressures around them and sort of stopped following Jesus, certainly outwardly. And as I mentioned, that happened with Christians who gave in and offered sacrifices to the emperor. But somehow these writer, these um, people that the writer of the Hebrews is writing to have clung in. They've stuck on with Jesus. And so look at verse 33. It talks about sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Verse 34 you joyfully, what an interesting word, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So what had gone on? What was the writer of Hebrews writing about here? Well, again, the answer is really lost in history. It could have been that for some of these early Jewish Christians, they'd suffered an early wave of persecution and had property confiscated and suffered from public ridicule. It could have been a split with a local non-Messianic Jewish group. We can only guess. But anything that happens in the public arena as a result of following Jesus is really tough. Just where it says about property being plundered, or if you've got an NIV in front of you, it uses the word confiscated. Just think for a moment, if today, if your house was ransacked or somebody took it from you, Is your faith in Christ, is my faith in Christ strong enough to withstand that kind of pressure? Is our joy, our confidence in the better possession of knowing Christ, of having entry to the most holy place sufficient to carry us through those difficult times? Now I look at our current situation in this pandemic and this is not the same as persecution and we need to be very careful not to draw too many parallels. But it is still a period where our faith is tested and it's being shaped. Now in the UK at the moment, it's not even on the horizon, I don't think, that we could expect to see our homes being taken from us due to persecution. But it's not too impossible to imagine that some of us may face significant economic pressures in the months that come ahead. Maybe we lose a job or an investment or even our homes through an economic recession. Is our faith tough enough? Is our confidence in the gospel strong enough? Is our hope great enough not to be wedded to the things of the here and now, but to have our confidence in the greater possession of knowing Jesus? A few months back, one of the the leaders at LBC, Scott, preached on Sunday night and he was talking about the word blessing and I've found this sermon really helpful and I hope I've, I've understood what he was saying. Um, so Scott you can tell me if I've not but the word blessing is a word that sometimes I think as Christians we overuse it to the point where we're actually not really sure what it means now blessings are essentially things that God gives us that actually we don't really deserve so things like you know we could say the blessing of God's love the blessing of being able to approach God um, through the blood of Christ the blessings of prayer the blessings of one another and then there are things in life that we're thankful for and I think Scott was trying to draw the distinction between these so 
I'm really thankful that I have a roof over my head. I, I have um, work to do. I have ministry to do. But there are times when actually we can confuse the consistent blessings that are true in all times and all places with the temporary things that we have to be thankful for in the here and now. If we base our faith on the temporary, it will struggle in the time of trial. You know, prosperity teaching doesn't hold much ground when when weighed in the light of Hebrews chapter 10. If we think that actually God shows his love for us by providing things like jobs and houses and cars and whatever, we will get very disorientated when trials come and when the temporary things prove not to be as solid as perhaps we thought they were. And we may even find ourselves asking questions like, well, I thought God loved me. I thought God cared for me. Any times we we choose to substitute inner faith and a changed heart for any kind of externals, we put our confidence in the gospel at risk. I was reading something this week on a minister's blog and it was saying how 50 years ago, some well-known writer of the time was complaining that the ministers of the day were spending far too long on the phone. And it said they were, they were involved in meaningless dialogue with members of their congregation. It sounds a bit old-fashioned and a bit harsh language, doesn't it, really? But the context was actually that, that ministers were spending too long in chit-chat trying to keep people happy rather than encouraging congregations to have this enduring, confident relationship with God. And it went on then to sort of highlight that the church life in so many churches has largely been, you know, against this sort of backdrop of decline that we find in Christianity in the Western world. The back, What we've ended up doing is trying to keep people happy through, you know, the way that we do our church services. We try and make sure we're singing the right songs, drinking the right coffee after church. Well, obviously, coffee is such an important thing, isn't it? And we try and create the right worship experience. And so often we, we can fall into thinking these things are priority rather than spending all our time and effort with one another, trying to make sure that we are tough, robust disciples of Jesus who can endure, who can go through trials. And we can easily substitute external observance for inner reality. So again, that question, what is going on in your heart? What is going on in your heart this evening? Verse 36, the writer says, for you have need of endurance. You know, it could well be that it's many months before churches can meet in any way that resembles the normal we previously had. Are we equipped for the long slog? Are we equipped? Are we robustly following Jesus, confident in the gospel rather than in external things? You know, even as we move forward, church may change significantly. And perhaps that's actually a good thing to refocus on those things that really, really matter. So the writer concludes right at the end of the chapter. Not to be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Where's your heart this evening? Is is your heart really given over to the Lord? Are you staying in that place of worship? Are you keeping entering into the most holy place through the blood of Jesus? Are you encouraged? Are you meeting together? Are you clinging on? Is it all internally that we're actually rejoicing in the gospel and rejoicing in who Jesus is? It's my prayer for myself and for each of us that this evening, we will be those whose heart is fully belonging to Jesus. Well, let's turn that to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your Son, 
we can enter the most holy place. We thank you that by your spirit we can be transformed and sustained. Thank you for the deposit of your spirit that reminds us that we are your children. And we just pray that as we've looked tonight at a very difficult, challenging passage, that you will help us to be those who stand firm, those who are encouraged, those who don't shrink back, and those who press on to a deeper and more enduring relationship with you. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.